Oh, hell yes. What's going on, Jay? Dude, old man Logan is going to fight Dracula. Oh, sweet. Right? Oh, wait, is he going to be okay? I mean, he's kind of old and Dracula is Dracula. Uh, it's okay. He's got backup. Jubilee? Oh, no, no, no. The Howling Commandos. Aren't they almost as old as he is? Or older in relative terms and also mostly dead? Oh, no, no. Not those Howling Commandos. These are the new Howling Commandos. Well, the most recent new Howling Commandos. There are new Howling Commandos? There have been a few. There were the all-new Howling Commandos, but they were kind of a one-time gig. So who are these guys? Are they all nationality-themed, like the originals, or like Street Fighter II characters? Oh man, no, they are not. This batch of Howling Commandos is a super kick-ass monster squad. And they just showed up to help take out Dracula? No, no, S.H.I.E.L.D. had stake in the mission. What was their stake in it? Not a stake. Stake, S-T-A-K-E. Special threat assessment for known extra normalities. I probably should have seen that coming. That's what the vampires say. Ha 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 ha. So who are these commandos anyway? Well, we've got Dum Dum Dugan, or at least a life model decoy of Dum Dum Dugan. Excellent. And there's Man Thing and the Manphibian, who's about what you'd expect from the name. There's Teen Abomination, Hit Monkey, again, pretty much what it says on the tin. Hit Monkey? What are his powers? He doesn't have powers. He's a monkey. But the name. With a lot of guns. What? Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 138 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a second Uncanny X-Men episode in a row. That's a rarity these days. Yeah, and that's because we've hit a specific period where suddenly Uncanny X-Men is coming out more frequently than the other books around it. They'll all even out pretty soon, but for now, we've got twice the Uncanny and twice the X. Exactly. What we don't have a lot of is, you know, the X-Men, as you may remember from the last couple X-Men episodes, which have shown us that there really isn't such a team. Right. They are scattered all over the place. The closest thing we've got are a motley bunch assembled on Muir Island by a suspiciously sexed-up Mara McTaggart. So that includes, for instance, the X-Men ally Forge, Storm's former partner, and also former X-Men Banshee, and they've been working with Moira McTaggart, like you said, also Lorna Dane, also a couple people that just sort of vanished in a battle with the Reavers and won't be mentioned for a while. The X-Men proper, the ones who had been in Australia, have mostly ended up through the Siege Perilous. Psylocke had telepathically pushed Havoc, Colossus, Dazzler, and eventually herself through to escape death at the hands of the Reavers, who had almost managed to kill Wolverine. Wolverine didn't go through the Siege Perilous. He was eventually rescued by Jubilee. And as a reminder, the Siege Perilous is a mystical portal given to the X-Men by the daughter of Merlin Roma, which, when you go through it, erases your memories and drops you somewhere in the world naked with none of your stuff. Confused yet? Great! You're in the right frame of mind for this story. Now, you mentioned that Wolverine met up with Jubilee. Jubilee was sort of an ex-stowaway in the X-Men's Outback base. So now she and Wolverine and the newly converted sort of into a generically Asian-looking ninja Psylocke are a makeshift triad who are basically the closest thing we have to actual X-Men right now outside of Muir Isle. And Psylocke is the only X-Men we've really followed very far through the Siege Perilous. Rogue went through some time previously. We haven't followed up with her. We haven't seen Havoc at all. Storm we've seen glimpses of in a, a de-aged form running around and fleeing the police. And now we are going to see what happened to one of the bunch who did go through the portal, that being the one and only Dazzler. In a story that is bafflingly a sequel to the one and only Dazzler the movie. A really straight-played sequel to Dazzler the movie, too. Why would you do that? 
We covered Dazzler the movie previously in episode 35, post-disco panic. If you want to have it fresh in your mind, you can go back to listen to that. But honestly, you don't really need to. Dazzler was going to be starring in a movie. It was produced by a guy named Eric Beale, who turned out to be a great big jerk. And she burned what, as far as she knew, was the last copy. And so that actually leads us into, years and years later, this story right here, because in a scene set in the out-of-business Beale Productions, you know, Eric Beale's former business, there's a kid named Freddie Stanichek, and he is packing up a bunch of Eric Beale's production stuff that he bought at a closeout auction. Now, we've seen Freddie Stanichek before. He was a very, very minor character in Dazzler the movie that was in there for like three pages. Yeah, this is such a weird callback, because he's a guy who Dazzler, does she even actually have a date with him, or does she just sort of jump into his car? Yeah, she gets a ride from him and encourages him to not be so meek and kisses him on the cheek. And that's about it. And that's it. We never see him again until now. He has popped back up and found among his new possessions that he bought from Beale unfinished footage from Dazzler the movie. Now, speaking of Beale, so you mentioned he was a total creep. But yeah, this guy did things like buy the gym that Dazzler worked at so he could change the rules and actually date her since he couldn't do so as a customer. He's really terrible, but he also wasn't a character we got very much into the head of. And I actually had to go back and check whether he'd appeared anywhere else since then, because it seems like a lot of stuff has happened in between Dazzler the movie and this arc with him. And it has, but it all happened off page and is just sort of summed up and implied by this story. If I had to piece together his history from the bits and pieces we see here, what I would say had probably happened is that his production company had gone under and in his increasing obsession with Alison Blair, he had blamed and become, you know, increasingly focused on her as the cause of his downfall and then done a ton of coke and invested heavily in mannequins yeah for the record i don't recommend cocaine or owning that many mannequins either you're going to end up as eric beale or you're going to be a basement somewhere in silent hill and nobody wants that follow your dreams i mean you know if that's your dream then i mean you probably still just shouldn't do the cocaine yeah don't don't be eric beale (laughs) basically that so anyway freddie's really excited because you know as far as he knows Dazzler is dead, the print was gone, and so this is really the only chance to kind of bring this woman who was very special to him back into the world. I mean, he saw her die on the news in Dallas during Fall of the Mutants, as far as he knows. Alas for Freddy, the producers point out that the fact that Dazzler's dead just kind of means she's yesterday's news. They don't really want there to be a movie about her. Now, if he can come up with a movie about the fall of Eric Beale, that could be something interesting and entertaining, but Dazzler, eh. Oh, man, they're so wrong. I would not watch a movie about the fall of Eric Beale. That guy's a jerk. One thing I really like about the art in this scene is that Sylvester's having a lot of fun with drawing all this Hollywood stuff. For instance, every time the producers that Freddie talks to are on panel, and he talks to them a couple times over the course of this story, there's this sort of roiling mass of assistance, like this big silhouette with a bunch of heads and arms and legs sticking out, just sort of frantically waving contracts and papers behind the producers who are ignoring them entirely. It's a really nice bit of visual comedy. And something that adds to the sort of sillier tone of the story, one that makes it match a little more with Dazzler the movie, and also is a nice contrast to all the Psylocke stuff from the last arc. I've said before, and I will say again, in fact, I'll say again probably before the end of this episode, that I think Sylvester is at his best when he's basically drawing romantic comedy. And this story lets him play with that and lets him play with the sort of cartooniness and expressiveness and slight slapstick of that in ways that suit him very, very well. Now, we've talked about Dazzler the movie, at least as much of it still exists. What about Dazzler herself? Because the last time we saw her, she went through a portal while very slightly brainwashed by Psylocke. When next we see her, she is naked and covered in seaweed. Yeah, Guido Caracella, the guy who will soon be named Strong Guy, but right now we just know as Lila Cheney's former bodyguard, finds her washed up on a beach. And isn't that kind of how Twin Peaks started? 
I was going to say if Dazzler had been the one who washed up at the beginning of Twin Peaks, it would have been a very different series. But then I started thinking about all of the weird shit that happens in Twin Peaks. And actually, I think it would have been pretty much the same. I got to say to briefly tangent. So I just saw Twin Peaks for the first time a few years ago. I'd never seen it before, like back in the 90s when it was going. Same, man. We would have been so obsessed with it. We would have, but it was so much weirder than I expected. And not like weirder, oh, there's creepy monstery stuff, but weirder like, wait, why are we suddenly in like a weird romantic comedy? Why is there this weird subplot about Civil War reenactment? What have I gotten myself into? Yeah. One of my favorite parts about watching Twin Peaks is playing the ongoing guessing game of at what point is David Lynch just fucking with us to see how much he can? Well, I think part of it is that in season two, he wasn't nearly as involved as in season one. So I don't know who is behind like the Civil War thing or Nadine the superhero or anything like that. But they have some strange and wondrous ideas. And I wouldn't call them necessarily good ideas, but I'm impressed nonetheless. Choices were made. Yes, they were. I still love Twin Peaks. Don't get me wrong. So anyway, Guido finds Dazzler washed up alive onto the beach of not Twin Peaks, and initially thinks that she is an interloper. You don't rock it out of my sight on the pop? I gotta call the law. Don't believe I said that. So much for the ideals of you. I love the way he talks. I don't know what accent that's supposed to be, but it's fun. My impression has always been that he's supposed to have a really heavy Bronx accent. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Um, which I guess isn't exactly how you read it, but it's one way you can twist it phonetically. Well, that's how I read it in my head as a child. Okay, then. And he realizes as he's carrying the woman inside that, oh, no, this isn't actually just a random drunk tourist. This is actually a random, possibly drunk, unconscious Allison Blair, who we know who's toured with the band, who's a friend of Lila's. What the hell even? And Lila's house is great. Lila's house is run by super fancy AI. And the AI is very apologetic that it hadn't spotted Dazzler on the beach and still actually can't quite perceive her. Because, as we know, after the X-Men were resurrected by Roma after Fall of the Mutants, they became invisible to all electronic detection, which has been consistently mentioned almost every time it would be relevant and will be up until all the writers just sort of forget that was ever a thing. Dazzler has no memory, although her personality remains basically intact, and she is relatively calm about what's going on. She talks to the house AI, gets it to give her an overview of who she is what she's supposed to have been doing, how it knows her, you know, bits and pieces of her life. And finally, finding herself at loose ends, asks, House, in a mess like this, what would Dazzler do? Go cruising. And so she does. I love that exchange. And she ends up at, quote, a hot bod, hot box club, so exclusively cool it doesn't have a name. Chris Claremont is good at many things, and giving, like, little one-sentence elevator pitches of the various settings that individual scenes happen in is certainly near the top of that list. They're a lot, lot, lot of fun. And may I just say, Amnesiac Give No Fucks Dazzler is so fun. She is so great. I'm not sure I entirely agree on that, but I'll get to that a little bit more later. Okay. Well, I like her a lot. Now, fortunately, our young gentleman, Freddie, is in fact cool enough to get into this nameless club. And he runs into Dazzler there, but she doesn't recognize him. Because she doesn't remember, you know, anybody. But to be fair, I don't think she would have remembered him anyway. Like, they had one brief conversation and she told him to follow his dreams, and that was pretty much it. I feel like she probably gives a lot of cheek kisses and follow your dream speeches to the various people in her life. Yeah, to like wide-eyed 20-something boys. I mean, I can get behind that, you know. He did follow his dreams and he ended up kind of awesome. Yeah, no, she's very nice, but it seems like you know, a life-changing moment for him was for her just kind of in passing interaction with a fan. And so Freddie's like, hey, let me take you to a different club. Let's go to this jazz club and I'm going to play you the saxophone. And uh, he does. And apparently he's pretty good. It should be noted that as Dazzler herself gets on stage and begins singing, this is very similar to a vision that Psylocke had 
when she was, you know, going through her hand brainwashing in the last arc, where she saw where each of the X-Men were going to end up after the Siege Perilous. She saw Dazzler singing at a club very much like this one. Dazzler was bright and brassy, blazing with innocence. This woman's been through the wars with the scars to prove it and the courage to let them show. And the narration contrasts this Dazzler from the old one, saying she seems a little bit more world-weary, a little more gentle, a little more subtle. And it's interesting because for me that doesn't really match the personality that we see on display in her dialogue. I disagree. I think she's a lot less of a bulldozer at this point. She's more happy-go-lucky and she's more just willing to roll with whatever's being thrown at her. But see, for me, that sort of opinionated, passionate nature was a lot of what I liked about Alison Blair. And don't get me wrong, I think it's a good story move to showcase her amnesia by having her personality contrast with her old one. Totally. But I really like old Dazzler. I came to love her a lot as I read her in the X-Men especially. I don't think this is that different from old Dazzler. I think there are aspects that are played up and aspects that are played down a little bit. But for me, the still read is pretty consistent. Well, regardless, one version of Dazzler that's not consistent is the horde of mannequins that Eric Beale has in his creepy altar basement as he does a lot of cocaine and rants and raves seeing Dazzler on the news in this performance. Knew you weren't toast, Ali felt it in my bones, kept me going, kept me keen, kept me strong, hatred and cocaine, magical elixir, fountain of youth. And he just goes on like that for like a couple pages. Well, Eric, um, it's nice to see that you've kept yourself busy since your studio closed. Don't do cocaine, kids. You'll end up like Eric Beale. Well, I mean, you need cocaine, you need a steady source for a large number of mannequins, you need a reasonably good tailor or costumer because most of them are dressed up as different iterations of Dazzler. And I guess you need a mustache like that, which to be fair, not everyone can grow. But you can procure one. You totally could. You could mug someone and take theirs. And then, from there, we see Dazzler get shot in the chest and die at the start of the next issue. And I should say at this point that because there are so many plates spinning right now, we're changing the order a lot. We'll do our best to make it make sense, ideally more sense than the comics did. Yeah, we're covering five issues that have maybe six different plot lines threaded and woven through them. And while some of those are going to intersect, and we'll get to those later, we're trying to follow them as individually as possible. Just take each one, see it through the entire story, and then jump over to another. And Dazzler, for the most part, stands on its own, so that's where we're starting. So yes, Dazzler has gotten shot in the chest and died, except she didn't, because apparently Eric Beale is just shooting his mannequins. It kind of reminds me of a less expensive version of that time the Reavers built a robot Wolverine just to kill it immediately. Yeah, I mean, this is super low-budget murder world. And so as he's freaking out, Freddy, meanwhile, is showing Dazzler the print of the movie that he's reconstructed, and even Guido Carosella, who apparently is tough to please, likes it too. Dazzler, on the other hand, is unimpressed. She's got no connection to any of the material, and instead she strips down to her emphatically branded body glove TM wetsuit and heads out to go surfing. Is there anything more 1990 than prominent body glove product placement? Possibly hypercolor. Valid point, valid point. But yeah, as she's surfing and lounging on her surfboard, she's almost shot by Eric Beale's sniper rifle because he's stalking her and trying to kill her. And she sees him and manages to blow up the next bullet still in the barrel because, as we remember from Dazzler and Havoc's old, you know, zappy contests in the Outback, she is deadly accurate with her light beams. Dazzler may not know who's trying to kill her or really who she is, but what she does know is that she's not going to stand for that shit. So she decides to go ahead, tell Freddy, make me a star, release the movie, it'll flush out whoever's coming after me, and then I'll be able to actually, you know confront this and maybe find a little bit more out about what's going on. So they head to Hollywood and talk to the producers again, this time with Dazzler in tow. Makeover montage. Dazzler identifies herself at this point as Skippy, Dazzler's evil twin. It's clear she's being facetious, but she's surprisingly consistent about this. Yeah, it's kind of great. I actually really like that. Now, another person who's come to the Hollywood studios is Eric Beale. He was thwarted the first time he's here again. 
And this is where things get weird because as Dazzler is, you know, going through wardrobe and talking to producers and that sort of thing, he keeps trying to pull out guns and kill her. And just as he's about to do so, he keeps getting, you know, set upon by the makeup department or the wardrobe department who assume that he's he's an actor. He's perpetually mistaken for an extra and dragged into wardrobe or has his gun taken away and switched out for a more period appropriate prop or something like that every time he's getting close to her. This is so weirdly slapstick. I mean, for a story about like a murderous stalker and for a story about what a woman rebuilding her identity after having it erased when she was telepathically controlled, like this is just weirdly Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, but it's Dazzler and it's Dazzler the movie. And there's a sort of cartoonish logic to the character and her interactions with the world anyway that this kind of fits into. I guess that's true. I guess even things like Beauty and the Beast, which we really liked, had some of that as well. Yeah, Dazzler's world is remarkably goofy. It's just played fairly straight. Regardless, as the movie premieres and even good old Roman Nakobo, that character from, well, a lot of Dazzler stuff, is there, Dazzler herself is busy getting kidnapped by Eric Beale disguised as a police officer, and he brings her to his weird, creepy, obsessive lair. Uh, She wakes up in his mannequin room. She is bound and masked with what appear to be burlap sacks, and she's dressed in her old disco roller skating outfit. Now, she manages to fight him a bit with her light powers, but her energy's been largely depleted at this point. That's something that Eric tried to do by, you know, keeping her in silence, presumably. And what she eventually has to resort to, as he attacks her with, you know, axes and guns and his surprisingly large armament, is basically trying to soothe him with her light powers, to calm him down, to show him the majesty and the beauty of the world. And sure enough, he falls to his knees, tears streaming from his eyes, and apologizes. Because that's the power of blinking lights i guess so i've been watching a lot of hannibal and um i guess that's not entirely at odds with that i I haven't seen hannibal so i wouldn't know but i'll take your word for it flashing lights and phototherapy are relevant to plot lines well regardless dazzler herself you know still newly constructing her identity starts pondering what this might mean for her is that my answer to use my light to help people to make them feel better about themselves and their world to bring them in big ways and small joy And man, I hear you, Allison. I ask that question of myself a lot. I mean, not the light power part, but, you know, the rest of it. But yeah, this is actually the last we see Dazzler for a while. Presumably she's gone into phototherapy and is maintaining a small and very quiet private practice somewhere in the Los Angeles hills at this point, in the Hollywood hills. I mean, I'm okay with calling that canon as everything else is going on, the Extinction Agenda and all that good stuff. Yeah, she's going to show up in a couple annuals, but otherwise we're not really going to see her until the, the new relaunch, the second series. Now, that is the story of Dazzler, but we have a lot of other plot threads, so let's do our first Meanwhile and cut to the Morlock Tunnels. Meanwhile in the Morlock Tunnels, Mask is mocking Callisto as he takes pictures of a face that he claims to have ruined. He is telling her, you know, to pose, and he's photographing her like she's a model. We can only see the edge of her body. We can't see her face at all. Now, Callisto, as a reminder, is the former leader of the Morlocks. She last came to New York from your aisle to basically shut down the X-Men's base so none of the bad guys could get in. Mask has kind of taken over the Morlocks since then. He was always a total jerk. He can mess with people's faces and sort of craft their flesh like that one thing from Vampire the Masquerade. He's bad news. And he's decided that now that he's got her in his power, he's going to take Callisto down a peg. Because you're strong and tough and smart and the way I can hurt you best is by taking all that away from you. Which raises a question that we're going to come to again and again, which is how much can Mask actually change someone? I mean, we know he can alter physical appearance. He can alter flesh. Can he change someone's intelligence? Can he change the way they interact with their powers, the way their powers function in any way that isn't just based on, you know, 
physical appearance or whatever. Man, his powers can do so many different things over the years, so I'm going to say, yeah, sure, why not? But let's cut in the meantime to a different part of New York entirely. Let's cut to Soho. And we're actually looking at two characters now who are not X-Men, but with whom the X-Men have once intersected before. These are Philip Moreau and Jenny Ransom. They are refugees from the nation of Genosha. Specifically, Philip Moreau is the son of the Genegineer, the scientific, basically, head of state. And Jenny Ransom is his girlfriend, who is a mutant and was thus, you know, turned into a mutate. She had a skin suit bound to her, sort of this permanent jumpsuit she couldn't take off. And her powers were messed with, so now that instead of being a healer, she's sort of big and strong and beefy. And they're great, but they have apparently been chased down by a group of Genosian magistrates who are trying to take them away. Jenny still responds to indoctrinated commands. She can't get away from them. Fortunately for Jenny and Philip, the magistrates are interrupted by a large, naked man who comes to the rescue. Naked man, you are the man. This naked man is pretty great. This naked man is a naked man who clearly knows his way around a fight. Perhaps one who is a superhero. Perhaps one who can turn into a bear when he's not a naked man. But no, that's not actually true. That's Ursa Major. Uh, This, in fact, is a man who introduces himself as Peter Nicholas. Now, it's very clear to us, especially since we've had the precedent of Dazzler coming naked out of the Siege Perilous, that this is probably Colossus. But Jenny and Philip don't recognize him because when the X-Men intersected with Genosian stuff... Colossus was still stuck permanently in his metal form. These days, he's stuck permanently, you know, not in it. He doesn't even know he can transform. Once they've subdued the magistrates, the police show up and arrest them, take them away. They are furious. They will brook no argument from the magistrates who insist, in fact, that they have every right to be there. You can't do this. We're accredited law officers doing our job. CKLT, you too, sport. I'm no Nazi. Could have fooled me. Kids applied for political asylum. You got no right to take them. Huh. The X-Men is certainly never relevant to political circumstances that might be occurring at present. But regardless, everybody heads to the hospital because our friend the naked man, Colossus, got shot during the scuffle. And when he says that he has nothing and nowhere to go and doesn't know who he is, they offer to take him in because they're nice folks. Well, they and the landlord of the building they were living in, Mr. Paulus, he tells them that he hates bully boy thugs. and He's good at sizing people up so they can all stay. And Peter seems like a nice fella. And would he like to take over as handyman and caretaker? And they'll call that even for rent. I love Mr. Paulus here. Like, I don't know if there's an archetype for grumpy yet kindly old man who doesn't like bullies and so is kind to our innocent hero. But I like it and I like this guy. I'm fascinated by this marvelous, fantastic New York in which people give away apartments in Soho. So Peter starts thinking when asked by his friends who he is. Well, I don't really remember anything, but I know my name is Peter Nicholas and I know about New York City and I'm in New York City, so I must be American and a New Yorker. But he's very much still himself, we find out as they talk. He's honorable, he's loyal, he's polite. You know, he's still Peter, just a version who thinks he's American and is slowly growing an awesome mullet slash ponytail. And has a weakness for the ladies. Well, one lady in particular, a beautiful, nameless model who he's been seeing on billboards and can't look away from. And one day while taking out the trash, he sees her running away from someone. She seems to be in trouble, but says she doesn't want to involve him and runs off. And he's going to start fixating on her more and more. He's an artist, and when he draws people, he's able to sort of see through disguises, see through facades, see through transpirations, and draw them as they really are. He draws a portrait of Jenny the way she looked before she was transformed in Genosha. As he's drawing portrait after portrait after portrait of this mysterious model, he's finding that the lines of her face are getting harder and sharper, and the her that he's seeing that he's drawing is kind of different from the one he's been falling for, but he can't quite put a pin on why. The astute reader might, however, have an idea. But regardless, he encounters her 
more and more. At one point, he sees her being chased by street toughs and jumps into action with his now even longer ponytail slash mullet with a baseball bat. But he's taken by surprise by the fact that the thugs are wearing masks and labeled jackets to look like various members of the X-Men. It kind of reminds me of those Halloween costumes where you'd get like the plastic smock that would have the logo of the character you were. No, on it would the have chest. a picture of the character, not oh, just right. the logo. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like that. What's interesting to me in this scene is how quickly Philip and Jenny dismiss them as just, you know, outlaws pretending to be other outlaws because the X-Men totally saved them. They really saved their asses. It's yeah. true. But regardless, between Jenny's super strength and Peter having a baseball bat, they do manage to fight off the mugger types, but the model is once again gone. So Peter just continues his career as a successful Soho artist, donning cowboy boots, getting an earring, and uh, some pretty attractive um, designer stubble, and he's the hot new artist in town, and at a gallery opening with a whole lot of fancy people, where we see a lot of his paintings, again, all of this model, this woman that he's only met briefly a couple times he starts to wonder kind of what's up with his visions of this woman. What interests me here is that we're seeing a version of Colossus that's not quite the PD pure heart of, you know, days of yore before the Siege Perilous. This is a guy who is obsessed with a woman whose name he doesn't even know, who he keeps trying to track down and keeps running away from him, who's clearly not interested in him. And who he keeps painting naked. Right. And not cool, Peter Rasputin. Although, I don't know, this is one of those long, weird conversations as to where art as expression does and doesn't make sense and how much likenesses matter and how much you can have something that's fine art and also something else. And, you know, public images and advertising as part of the public consciousness versus as images of individual humans. It's a really long, interesting, involved conversation. Well, regardless, one thing I like about it is that here we have Colossus as kind of a flawed dude. Like, he's being creepy and objectifying this woman and obsessing over her and being almost a little stalkery. And those aren't good behaviors, but to me, it makes Peter a more interesting character. It makes him more human to be that flawed, to be a little bit more ruled by his passion. So that, I think, is how you do a good post-Siege Perilous story for the X-Men. You show different sides of them that aren't inconsistent with who they've been, but that maybe bring out parts of themselves that they hadn't focused on or parts of themselves they didn't even know were there. Peter as one of the X-Men, as Piotr, has always been very defined by his sense of duty, his sense of propriety, and his sense of protectiveness. This is the same guy in a lot of ways, but this seems like Peter with a lot of the weights of his life lifted away. Um, one who's sort of left to pursue and live the life that he would just in a vacuum as a default, given any number of options open to him and no obligations. And it kind of feels like he's pouring those fixations and sort of that obsession that had previously gone into, you know, looking after Ilyana, the X-Men and all of that stuff into this mysterious woman. And he sees her yet again as she shows up at his door asking for help. As he opens it up, there's Mask and we fade to black and probably that's not a good thing. Right. So we are going to give those guys a break for now and head over briefly to visit with Valerie Cooper at the White House. Now, Valerie Cooper runs Freedom Force, and she's involved at high levels with decision-making processes around superhuman and especially mutant affairs. She is not herself a mutant. She's also related to Special Agent Dale Cooper, randomly. Bringing in our second Twin Peaks reference of the episode. Right. Oh, yeah, we're Twin Peaks all over the place, although that's not going to be revealed until much later. She's meeting with a governor and with Genosha's foreign minister and Genosha's chief magistrate, Anderson, who are accompanied by a terrified-looking mutate child. And Valerie Cooper, seeing the child, says to the Genosians, You know, we fought a civil war to end chattel slavery. No, Doctor. You fought it to prevent the secession of half your nation over the conflict between the supremacy of your federal government over those of individual states. 
Liberation of the slaves came later. So it's clear that the Genotians, while horrible racists, I mean, they're not dumb. They found ways to rationalize exactly what they're doing. They found ways to take this racism and make it okay because it's for the greater good. Yeah, no, the Genotians are fun to watch. And the villains in general, the political villains in X-Men are fun to watch because their rhetorical arguments for what they do are very directly lifted from actual political arguments and conversations and obviously including ones that are still going on to this day. And when you see them reapplied in contexts like this, they become blatantly obvious. And this is one of those places, I think, where allegories are hugely, hugely important and hugely useful because sometimes it takes taking an absurd thing out of a context in which we've normalized it and putting it into an equally absurd context to realize just how bizarre it is. And then sometimes bringing it back to reality makes that hit home. And they're arguing their main point is that the mutates are not, in fact, people. They are pieces of biotechnology. They are basically inventions. Effectively, they are machines with biological components. And they're kind of convincing in this already anti-mutant United States because the governor that's accompanied Val Cooper into this conversation talks to her after, saying, Is she a girl, Dr. Cooper? I mean, could they be right? Was Dred Scott a man, sir? I mean, we're laying it on kind of thick in this scene, but it needs to be laid on thick. Genosha was an apartheid parallel, and that's the sort of thing you have to discuss. That's the sort of thing you have to highlight, even if it's in a superhero comic. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's really important, too, to bring those allegories home to real life. One of the things I appreciate about this scene is that while it's talking about older history, grounding the fantastic state of Genosha and the allegorical stuff in actual real-life persecution and discrimination again, drives home that there are things in here that matter outside of the comic book, that extend outside of the comic book, that extend outside of the discussion of the comic book. Now, Val Cooper isn't just here to have Genosian stuff go on, because she is also later on in these issues brought into like a trendy nightclub while dressed as a trendy club kid to meet with a representative from the KGB. Meeting the KGB in nightclubs, the Val Cooper story. Now, the Val meeting with the KGB stuff, which happens just peppered through a couple issues, is set up for, again, the dropped storyline, the mutant wars. It's they're building up foundation for something that's never actually going to go anywhere, worrying about the possibility of a massive mutant conflict that will ultimately escalate into an outright war with the nation of Genosha. Right. And, you know, we have this KGB rep talking about how maybe humans are going to get lost in the shuffle as the mutants fight each other, as the mutants fight Genosha, and maybe things will get even worse than they've been. While Val is gossiping with the KGB and uh, laying feudal groundwork for a non-existent crossover. On Muir Island, everything is a bit terrible. Everyone has been acting really grumpy and weird and off, and in Moira's case, extremely sort of sexified up, except for Lorna and Banshee and to some extent Forge. Lorna is convinced that it's her fault. Before she came to Muir Isle, she was on a ship where everyone there started fighting and going after each other as well, and she was the sole survivor, and she thinks that maybe whatever happened there is spreading and is somehow related to her new mutation. But before she can delve too deeply into that, Legion shows up and takes over her mind. He declares that he is going to make Muir Isle his playground. We're eventually going to learn the Shadow King is behind all of this, but for now, David locks Lorna up in Proteus's old chamber. This little plot thread, I'm not going to say it's dropped because it will come back in a big way later, but it'll be much later in a way that does make you wonder, wait a minute, so the other people on Muir Isle, did they just like not notice that Lorna wasn't there anymore? Did they not notice that this, you know, chamber that's presumably being heavily monitored given that Mutant X used to be in it 
has been opened and then closed and there's somebody in it? Well, he's not there anymore and it had no purpose anymore. Presumably, it's just sort of ignored at this point. Regardless, that is kind of emblematic of something that keeps happening in this era, which is dropped plot threads. I mean, during the fight with the Reavers, we saw Alisanne Stewart and Amanda Sefton get captured, and, like, that's not going to be mentioned basically ever again. I'm not sure exactly what was going on in Marvel editorial at the time, in, like, 1989, 1990, thereabouts, but things are less precise than they used to be. Things are less organized and deliberate than they used to be. Well, what we're seeing is a major, major changing of the guard. A lot of the old crew, especially artists, are starting to shift out for a new generation of artists who are coming in with a lot more prominence and a lot more fan cachet. That's the Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, um, Mark Silvestri era and generation. It's, it's one I associate much, much more closely with Lee than with anyone else. But this is also the point where you start to see artists much, much more involved in co-plotting and storytelling. And you see a lot of the kind of writer-run, writer-choreographed, and especially writer-editor relationships start to dissolve and start to fragment. So you get a lot of stuff that's very cool and very intense and very explosion-y, but a lot less of the precision and intricacy that we associated with the early years. Claremont is also starting to move away from the X-Books. He's only going to be with this line for another couple of years. So what's going on in Muriel at the moment is that Forge has been working on new defenses ever since they all got, you know, the hell beaten out of them by the Reavers. They're a little concerned and Banshee takes Forge aside, saying he thinks that something weird is going on on your aisle, and maybe Forge should put a back door into the security system that only Forge and Banshee can get into and nobody, especially Moira, knows about. Yeah, Moira has been acting really strange. She's been very brash and very confrontational. She has been dressing in highly laboratory inappropriate garments, wearing stiletto heels and crop tops and mini skirts in an environment where she really needs proper protective gear. And she has designed new and extra sexy costumes for the X-Men, which they've lampshade throughout this. No one likes them, and yet they end up sticking around for a really long time. Well, especially on Forge and Banshee, they'll be wearing those uniforms even through the 1991 costume redesign that Jim Lee does. Oh, man. No one deserves those costumes. They're not that, like, there are elements of them that are good, but they're could, just sort of generally regrettable. I could do without the thong portion and the stiletto heels on all the female costumes. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, we'll get back to those in just a minute. But once the defense system is up and running, uh, Moira and the crew hook Legion up to Cerebro in hopes of locating the X-Men. Because when Polaris joined up with the Mirror Isle crew, she mentioned, oh, the X-Men? Yeah, they're totally alive. We hung out in the Savage Land. They're out there somewhere. I just don't know where. And they figure, well, they need a telepath to run Cerebro. David is technically a telepath. They accidentally call him Daniel. That happens a couple times around this era. So that's the thing. But he attempts to use Cerebro, and when he does, he starts screaming, there's huge psychic feedback, and Forge immediately sees an image of Amal Farouk, the Shadow King above Legion, who tells him in a strange, spooky font, Storm Cairo. So to me, this reads like nothing more than a dungeon master who's got super frustrated with his party just, you know picking up on the wrong story hooks, and so eventually just has a giant vision that very clearly points them toward where his binder full of notes says that they should go. Eventually, he'll just end up throwing in an NPC who knows where everything's supposed to be, and is like, guys, guys, come on, come on. Now, you, you can't stay lawful good and set people on fire that often. You just can't do that. I have been both that GM and that player. <sighs> good times. I have not gamed in way too long. Anyway, so Banshee and Forge get dressed up in their best ridiculous safari clothes, and um, we next see them on Kyranos. Um, they're on their way to Egypt and meeting up 
with Banshee's pilot friend, Scylla. Um, they've been to Kyranos before. We have before, um, on and off. It is where the X-Men go basically to regroup and lick their wounds between adventures. Now, I was trying to think of examples of when the X-Men had been to Kyranos, and I couldn't think of any. So I checked out the blog, The Real Gentleman of Leisure, which, again, I highly recommend if you haven't checked it out, which is a really good resource for uh, kind of the background context and also good story analysis for the issues of, well, this era and a lot of others. And they said that this was, quote, where Professor Xavier went to recover from his breakup with Moira slash vacation with Lalandra, where Phoenix went when she believed the X-Men were dead, and where Storm and the New Mutants went after defeating the Shadow King, just before getting teleported to Asgard. And now Banshee, Forge, and uh, Scylla the pilot are about to head off for Cairo when Banshee spots an issue of People magazine with Dazzler on the cover and decides that, nah, screw the vision, fuck the GM, we're going to Hollywood. And Scylla says, hey, whatever, you already paid me, and flies off, and then her plane explodes. Twist! Fenris was on a yacht nearby in tiny bathing suits, blowing it up because Fenris and they're terrible and they toast with champagne and make arch comments about what they've just done. So Fenris are the Strucker twins. We've seen them most prominently in the X-Men world in Uncanny X-Men number 200, where they tried to assassinate a whole lot of people at Magneto's trial. They're just unabashedly awful. I mean, there's a certain purity to how awful they are. Like, everything about them is terrible and they just sort of go, ha 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 ha, and, you know, clink champagne glasses as they cause untold murder and destruction. And in a way, I have to respect that. They know what they're good at, which is being awful people that make the world worse, and they really enjoy themselves. Despite the meddling of the Struckers, Banshee and Forge manage to make their way not to Hollywood, but to the X-Mansion. How they get there, we have no idea. But when next we see them, they have arrived there, and they are looking at pictures of Moira on enormous monitors, pondering how much more glam her hair has gotten, and that it's probably a sign that she's gone evil. But what they also see on monitors, unexpectedly, is Jean Grey on loan from X-Factor. She just got proposed to by Scott Summers in X-Factor, which we'll get to that in yeah, the near episode. In X-Factor 53, she's on loan from the title, not from the team. She's just taking a day off from the team um, to wander around the ruins of the Xavier Mansion and uh, sift through the wreckage of its latest explosion and inevitably and, of course, find one of Scott and Maddie's wedding pictures because she has the uh, Summers Grey drama magnetism power. That she does, and apparently she also has a monster magnetism power. Oh man, monster magnet. I haven't thought about them in a long time. But anyway, these monsters show up who look very much like the X-Men. If the X-Men were scary monsters with flesh in the wrong places and like, you know, tentacles and pinchers and too many legs and that sort of thing. And faces inside their faces. Yet Jean Grey, the evil, weird monster Jean Grey, has Jean's face and then sticks out her tongue and there's another Jean's face on the tongue and it's actually pretty great. Before they can overwhelm Jean, Forge and Banshee head down and manage, along with Jean, to fight them away. They try to capture a monster, but they are unable to do so because uh, the monsters teleport off. Back at HQ, the guys give Jean a new style X-Men suit complete with yellow thong and built-in thigh-high stiletto boots. I hate to sound ungrateful, guys, but this is what passes for X-Men uniforms these days. Seriously, who the fuck builds stiletto heels into a superhero costume? I will absolutely accept that as proof of evil. Right. Unquestionably. Also, thongs. I mean, thongs have their places, but in this uniform? Like, no, that just looks uncomfortable. Well, as an external component, you'd think it would have less impact. And you also don't know that it's necessarily an overly attired. It might just be weird color blocking. I hope that it's weird color blocking because the alternatives are kind of just incredibly impractical and uncomfortable. 
Now, Jean is a little disturbed to hear that Moira, you know, has gotten so strange. Again, apparently the major signifier of this is how sexy everything is, which says some interesting things about how Claremont was looking at sex, maybe? Hard to say. I'd still really like to think that what we see when we look at this is the sexualization, but what everyone else sees when they're looking at the differences between the Moiras is how wildly impractical all of the new stuff is. That may be the case. Like, if she'd just gone for, like, super low necklines and sensible shoes— They would be like, oh, no, fine, whatever. But it's like, no, no, hairspray and, you know, around flammable materials and stiletto heels and fights. You know, Moira is just way more on the ball than that. (laughs) And Jean does know Moira from before because, as she points out, she met Moira long before the X-Men even existed. And that's an allusion to some classic X-Men backup stuff we've seen before that implied that, in fact, she knew Xavier and a lot of other people well before X-Men number one. And one of these days, we'll get to those classic X-Men backup stories. One of these days. One of these days. It'll happen. A lot of you have asked when we're going to cover them. And the answer is basically a nebulous but wished for someday. We'll, hey. we'll get there. So Banshee reveals the plan to Jean. They're going to let Moira McTaggart assume they're dead after that plane blew up because he thinks that maybe Moira was responsible for hiring whoever blew it up. They say they suspect that the X-Men may be alive and they're going to try to find them before the Reverse can. And Jean finally and reluctantly admits that, yeah, in fact, the X-Men are alive. X-Factor totally hung out with them during Inferno. And um, sorry about that. And Banshee is furious. I mean, he thought all of his friends died and they didn't tell him that, no, they were still okay. He was mourning their deaths and they didn't do anything about it. And, you know, I can't fully blame him at all. Fun fact. This is one of my most common anxiety dreams. That people will fake their own death? That I have been mourning extensively for someone who I was really close to, who everyone else around me knows faked their death or had their death misreported but didn't think to tell me. That is a very specific anxiety dream. For most of my life, that has been sort of one that one that keeps coming back. So I'm with Banshee here in the Righteous Rage corner. Fair enough, right? So Jean says, okay, so things are clearly not going well. You know, the Reavers have been going after the X-Men, apparently. Muriel got attacked. How about you guys just, you know, come up to ship where X-Factor lives and we'll just, you know, fly above it all until the danger has passed. Also, it's nice there and we've got teenagers to indoctrinate and stuff. But they decline. Banshee is wondering what has happened to Callisto. Callisto never returned from her mission off to seal the complex, although it appears from the look of the complex itself that she might have succeeded. Jean, meanwhile, can't get in touch with X-Factor. Ship says they're out, not sure when they're going to be back, so all of them just sort of hang out at the X-Mansion for a while and reminisce about old times. And I really love this part because... Jean and Banshee have a lot of history. For part of it, Jean was Phoenix, but then Jean got all Phoenix's memories, so who cares? And so Banshee's playfully flirting with her. She, you know, good-naturedly elbows him the chest, telling him to behave. Like, it's handled in a very believable old friends kind of way. Unfortunately, their bonding comes to an abrupt halt when they are rudely teleported away. And so Forge is a little concerned, but what he also is is beset by flashbacks. As a heavily armed Forge makes his way into the Morlock tunnels, he is reminiscing about a abandoning his heritage for the military as a young man, going off fighting wars, having a group of soldiers who he was sworn to protect. Within the tunnels, he manages to trace Gene and Banshee. He has slipped them trackers when he inoculated them against the monster's potential poison, and he gets to a cavern full of monsters based on a mix of the X-Men, the New Mutants, and X-Factor. And he accidentally, in the ensuing scuffle, kills one of the monsters, specifically, of course, the one that looks like Storm, his ex-girlfriend. This takes him on another walk down memory lane, this time to comforting a fellow soldier who had killed a child in Vietnam. And as the scuffle continues, he gets some assistance from Banshee and Jean Grey. 
Except- In the tunnels, not in Vietnam. That's not Wayne's living room because Banshee doesn't have a mouth anymore. And yet he must scream like the Harlan Ellison book as referenced by a caption. Thank you, Chris Claremont. They actually spelled that out. They totally spelled that out because Chris Claremont never met a reference that he didn't think could be improved by explaining it. Did the caption have another smaller caption that said, get it, get it? (laughs) Probably so. So Banshee's got no mouth, meaning he can't do this sonic scream thing or presumably eat or drink. But Jean Grey, okay. Now, this set of issues is pretty strange. There's some good stuff, there's some bad stuff, and then there's this. And then there's Jean Grey and her tentacle arms. So Jean has big, floppy, like, bunches of tentacles instead of arms. And she's pretty much okay with that. Jean's response to having her arms replaced with tentacles is fairly sanguine and remarkably practical. She discovers that she can control them perfectly well, basically using the same parts of her brains that she uses for telekinesis. She can't do both at the same time, but the tentacles are great. She can move really fast. She can swing along the rafters. And she's sort of experimenting with how much she can do with them as the three of them try to plot. I think at one point we have her braiding her hair, wrapping around pipes, cuddling a somewhat disgruntled looking rat. That rat kind of reminds me of our friend Jen's cat, uh, Molly Pop, who always looks yes. really angry even when she's happy. Oh, Molly is great. Um, Molly is like what you'd get if you described a cat to someone who hadn't seen a cat in a lot of detail and they made it, but it wasn't quite on model. Um, so Molly is is roughly the size and weight of a cinder block. She's not a particularly fat cat, but she's unbelievably dense. So she's a lot heavier than she looks like she should be, and she's sort of weirdly rectangular. Um, she has a a tail that was broken when she was a kitten at one point, so it crooks, and she's got one crossed eye, which means she always looks furiously angry, even when she's very happy, and she beeps. Yeah, not meows, but beeps. Molly is a high-quality cat, and we approve of her. So, okay, so Jean's being pretty chill about the tentacles. I mean, she does express concern at a couple points, but overall, she's adapting quite well. And I don't know, like, what would you do if you suddenly got arm tentacles? I mean, I'd probably multitask a lot. If nothing else, I feel like it would make things like laundry sorting and a lot of household chores easier. I also feel like we're talking around the obvious. But not like in a creepy hentai way, mind you. Like, everything would be totally consensual. Right. I mean, it would just sort of be a, well, this is a new option. Let's see how that plays out. But yeah, in general, I feel like clothing would be harder. But in a lot of ways, it's basically just the having extra and more versatile hands and arms in terms of how it plays out. And yeah, Jean seems cool with this. Jean seems... Not exactly even resigned, just sort of to have cheerfully decided that, well, maybe she'll just have tentacles for the rest of her life, and that'll be pretty much okay. I mean, Scott's totally into the weird stuff. It'll be fine. Yeah, I feel like he would also be fairly chill about her showing back up with tentacles. Like, okay, that's definitely not the most traumatic thing that has happened in the course of this relationship. Whatever. You didn't ally with a demon and try to murder my son, so hey, I'll count this in the win column. You're not on fire. You're not dead or immediately coming back from death. You appear to basically be the same person otherwise. You seem very happy. So yeah, you know, go Jean. Go Jean's tentacles. Now, meanwhile, elsewhere in the Morlock tunnels, Mask is sort of addressing his various Morlock followers, all of whom are sort of different versions of the X-Men, and his new prisoners, Peter Nicholas and that model. The model, we learn for sure after it's been heavily hinted, is in fact Callisto. It is Callisto all prettied up by Mask and basically pushed out into the world, and with, it's heavily insinuated, a lot of her strength missing. Now, Mask, of course, recognizes that Peter Nicholas looks a whole lot like Colossus, which he considers a great irony since he has scuffled with Colossus before, 
but he knows that the X-Men are dead, so it must just be an uncanny, if you will, resemblance. He decides that just for funsies, though, he's going to modify Peter Nicholas. First, he gives him bug eyes because he's an artist and he thinks, oh, that'll be fun. Mask takes those away and is like, no, no, no. I'm going to make you look like Colossus. I'm going to make you look like you're made of organic steel. Obviously, you won't be. It'll be like body paint, but actually your body. But ha ha ha, you'll look so much like Colossus then. Won't we all be amused? And that's the thing with this version of Mask. I mean, he just plays. He's got what he always wanted, which is to be in charge, to be able to craft the flesh of various people however he feels like, and to not have Callisto or the X-Men or anybody else there to stop him. Do you think that there's an alternate universe where Mask is like a supervillain underground artist who just does horrible, fucked up things with people's bodies and basically flesh crafting? I suspect there is. Or he just, you know, shunts over to the Vampire the Masquerade universe and he fits right in. Hmm. Anyway, so Mask returns Callisto back to her old appearance, eye patch and all, and sends her and Peter off on their way because it's time for some good old hunting humans for sport. Oh man, now I'm really sad that Stonewall died in that fight on Muriel that we saw recently because this is totally the murder grandpa's jam. Like, they would love to team up with Mask and just do some good old-fashioned, most dangerous game-style human hunting. I feel like they would get in arguments with Mask about, you know, what was proper sportsmanship in this scenario, though. I mean, they had some fairly strict rules. They went to great lengths to rationalize their hunting humans for sport while Mask just sort of owns it. So as this is going on, as Peter and Callisto run away from Mask, meanwhile in the tunnels, Forge, Banshee, and Jean are like, okay, well, something clearly isn't right. Callisto's down here somewhere. Let's see if we can help, even though there are so many of them and there are so few of us. I mean, what if they got on their side? You know, they got to pull their resources. They've got Forge and his inventions. They've got Banshee, who can still punch even if he can't scream. They have so fucking many tentacles. Like, Like, way more tentacles than most rescuers could ever dream of having. Probably more tentacles than all the Morlocks put together. But regardless, what they also have is some more flashbacks, because Forge remembers the last stand of his troops in Vietnam. Against Jean Grey and her tentacles. Well, no, against, you know, the Viet Cong, presumably. Yeah, Forge remembers he and his unit were isolated in a valley, um that bottlenecked, trying to hold the enemy until planes could arrive to blow it all to hell. Including blowing all them to hell. They were vastly outnumbered, but Forge addressed his troops nonetheless. Anyone see a flick called the 300 Spartans? Well, bros, that's us. And it kind of is a solid parallel. I mean, the three of them against all the Morlocks don't have much of a chance, like Banshee's powers have been completely removed. But nonetheless, they're heroes, and this is what heroes do. Or at least this is a very strange version of what heroes do. And later on, there'll be a visually beautiful and critically acclaimed, but also weirdly a historically homophobic graphic novel written about them. So yeah, Callisto and Peter flee. Callisto is kind of freaked out because that beautiful form Mask altered her into, it's starting to come back on its own. And as it comes back, she's losing her strength and cunning and her ability to function as Callisto. How much of this is Mask's doing? How much Mask can actually take those things away and how much of it is effectively psychosomatic isn't really explored. And Peter jumps to reassure her. All right, so you're not the woman you were. Part of your life is lost to you. That happens. Does that mean you give it up? Does it have to change who you are? Little bit on the nose, and he doesn't even know it. Because that parallels nicely with both Jean with her new tentacle arms that she'll have to deal with definitely forever, definitely past this issue, and himself. He's lost everything, and yet, at his core, he's still Peter Rasputin, even if he calls himself Peter Nicholas. But just as they're reaching that moment of resolution, everyone converges, and Colossus gets stabbed and then goes metal for real, but nobody realizes it because he's still 
has the mask, you know, over a layer of looking like he's made of metal. And so the heroes do manage to team up and defeat the Morlocks as both Jean and Colossus have their tentacles slash metal hands around Mask's neck. Mask offers to transform them back, but they refuse and are apparently about to kill him when one of the Morlocks teleports everyone away. Now, thankfully, Forge has nabbed cell samples with everyone's real genetic patterns, although how he got Colossus is I'm not sure. You know, I'm guessing he just sort of had it. Actually, I think Colossus just reverted back to his normal self when he went out of metal form and everyone just thought it was Mask's thing wearing off. That could be. But regardless, they're okay. And I love this weird little Deus Ex Machina that Forge had been, you know, using those cell samples he took when he first vaccinated them at the beginning of this adventure to kind of, uh, it's kind of like re-imaging a computer for those of you familiar with the concept. It's a fun little trick. Yeah, it's also got striking implications for the future of medical technology or would if Forge ever shared his inventions with anyone, which he doesn't because he's kind of an asshole. Damn it, Maker, what are you doing? And so after all of this, I mean, Gene's okay, Colossus is okay, Callisto is okay. Forge just sits out on the roof and watches the sun rise slash set because you can never really tell in comics and talks to these kind of images of his old troops, the ones who all died, who he did the horrible spell that we learned about in Fall of the Mutants to avenge. I got him out, bros. This time, this outfit, I kept my word. I didn't break faith. Alive and safe and whole. I brought my people home. So it's really nice to see Forge in the spotlight as a protagonist himself instead of just a secondary character, but what a weird story in which to see that. Okay, we've gotten through the bulk of these. We have one more arc to go in this bunch of issues. Remember how we said there's a lot? There's a lot. But this one's pretty simple, and it's pretty self-contained. This is the Wolverine, Jubilee, and Psylocke part of the adventure. And on the cover, we see the caption, The Ferocious Introduction of Hardcase and the Harriers. That's bullshit. They were introduced in Wolverine number five. Well, at least a couple of them were. But yeah, these are a group of mercenaries that used to work for S.H.I.E.L.D. Apparently these days, they're just straight-up mercenaries at this point, and they're looking at their next mission, which is to retrieve Wolverine, Psylocke, and Jubilee. So, Hardcase and the Harriers, for those of you unfamiliar with them, are basically the dollar store knockoffs of G.I. Joe. Right, we have Longbow, Ranger, Shotgun, Axe, Warhawk, Lifeline, Hardcase, Blindside, Piston, and Time Bomb. And they all do exactly what you would expect them to do based on those names. But I really do kind of love their dynamic. I mean, as much as they are G.I. Joe knockoffs, as much as this does seem like a backdoor pilot that never actually went anywhere. Does it? I think it does, yeah. But they seem fun. So at one point, Blindside says to Axe, Day you start taking jobs for granted, big guy. It's the day you place your down payment on the farm you buy when you die. They're just, you know, delightful little murderers for hire. Meanwhile, Jubilee is being significantly less delightful. She is in Lowtown in Madripoor, and she is not fond of the local food. I mean, to be fair, some of it does still appear to be alive. That's it, that's it, that's it! Hate Scream, Cry Rage, Scrant, Gripe, Shriek! Sylvester has so much fun drawing her as like this moody teenager with an almost elastic plastic face. It's so expressive. He is really channeling Brett Blevins here, and it's pretty great. Now, also in this restaurant is Psylocke in her new physical form. She's being all, like, mysterious in the corner in this super, super tight dress. Psylocke has decided that the best way to come to terms with her new body is to lean real hard into supervillain couture. I mean, she's basically dressed like Vampira here. She's got, well, I guess non-tattered Vampira. She's got a dress with a v-neck collar line basically down to her navel. It's pretty much painted on. 
and this amazing, huge stand-up fan collar in the background. And yeah, she's just going high camp supervillain. It's lovely. Well, they don't have time to be all sexy in this restaurant or to complain about the food for very long because suddenly Hardcase and the Harriers show up and two arms pull Wolverine through a wall and Shotgun shoots Jubilee in the chest and it's bad times. I gotta say, this restaurant, I give it one star on Yelp. I mean, living food, stolen fast food that we see Jubilee get as a replacement, crazy fights with people going through the walls. Yeah, but that's exactly what people come to Matterport for, so I'm thinking five stars. That maybe is a good point. But regardless, the next thing we see is Jubilee waking up all bruised and terrified, with Psylocke bursting into her room, and Jubilee, as you may recall, does not like Psylocke at all. She really doesn't trust her. However, with Wolverine missing and the Harriers hot on their trail, they decide that they're going to have to work together. Jubilee comes up with a plan that Psylocke agrees to. Jubilee will dress up as a pizza delivery boy to get into the Harriers' base— She's got a stack of 25 pizzas, and they're actual pizzas, so that she and Psylocke procure these pizzas first to lend credence to her cover. You know, it's from the rescue budget. And once they're in, she lights the place up with her fireworks. Is this a sight or what? Am I not the best? Must be the Canucks' new sidekick. Excuse me to all blazes, Mr. Sexist Pig Dog, but why can't he be mine? I mean, I do all the work, take the risks, pull off the daring rescues... And there's a big fight, and Jubilee and Psylocke are eventually taken out, only to be rescued by Wolverine, who has been freed by them. Turns out he's totally pulled a Professor X here. He's friends with Hardcase and the Harriers. He, in fact, hired them to see how well Psylocke and Jubilee could work as a team, given the lack of trust. Professor Wolverine is a jerk. Right. And just as this happens, a bunch of other Madripoor friends of Wolverine burst in as a secondary rescue squad, including Jessica Drew and Lindsay McCabe and Rose Wu and some other folks. And so Wolverine just offers them some pizza, too. And I think that actually wraps up that branch of the story. And so let's quickly recap where we left everyone, because this was big and fast. Dazzler is somewhere in Hollywood. She has decided that what she wants to do is help people, and she is going to be largely absent from the pages of X-Books for the next several years, save for a few appearances in annuals. Colossus, Banshee, Forge, and Callisto are all hanging out in what's left of the X-Mansion, still very near the Morlock, so that worries me a little bit, but they'll be overlapping between X-Men and X-Factor, along with some other characters from each book, for quite a while. On Muir Island, Moira McTaggart... And David Holler are the two remaining pickup X-Men. What's going to happen to them and what's going to happen to Lorna Dane, who is currently locked in a closet, remains to be explored. We'll get there in, I believe, the Muir Island saga. And Valerie Cooper is, I'm assuming, dancing the night away with the KGB at a trendy club. Possibly doing aerobics with him. They meet up later at a sports bar. I love it. Well, regardless, that is that for this segment of this truly bizarre era of Uncanny X-Men. So, you've got questions. JR asks via email, similar to the question you had several podcasts ago about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, if Troy and Abed threw an X-Men-themed party for the rest of the characters and community, who would everyone come dressed as? Hi, JR. How does it feel to be my new best friend? This question made me so happy and is partially responsible for, um, at least half a day's productivity loss this week, because if there's anything that I have real strong feelings about that's not X-Men, it's community. I love community so much. It is one of my favorite things in the world. And I've actually thought about this question before. So I have answers. And I'm going to give you, this is going to be the core cast. This is not going to be the season five cast. So here's what I've got. And for everyone, uh, the question to which JR is referring was one that we answered in episode 103, Warwolves of London, which involved not cross-casting, but speculating on whom the cast members of Brooklyn Nine-Nine would dress as for an X-Men themed party. So first of all, 
it's not Troy and Abed's party. It's obviously Troy, Abed, and Annie's. Troy and Abed, when they throw parties, tend to go more generally thematic or esoteric. And I could totally see Annie as an X-Men fan. This seems much, much more like a shindig they would have thrown as the triumvirate. They've also got the three easiest costumes. Annie is going to go as Shadowcat because Annie is basically Shadowcat already. And she'd like her and she'd like the costume. Troy and Abed are going to go as the world's greatest BFFs, Warlock and Cypher, who are just the right level of obscure for these two. Please note that they will have attempted to construct versions of the costume that could merge into Douglock. They will have had to abandon that due to lack of time and some major logistical issues, but they won't have given up on it entirely. It'll still be somewhere for them to revisit later, and Abed will still be thinking about how to make it work through a good chunk of the party. I should also note that in the I have thought about this before that I actually have a commissioned piece from Erica Henderson of Warlock and Cypher doing Troy and Abed in the morning. Because, yeah, obviously those two. It's pretty great. It is. Um, I love it dearly. Uh, Shirley will be coaxed into going as Storm, um, mostly via Annie's efforts. She is going to have serious misgivings about the whole goddess backstory, but she will eventually get super into character and definitely go off at Jeff as Storm at least once. Pierce will come dressed as Cable, and it'll be surprisingly awesome. Britta will show up as Wonder Woman, and she'll be really defensive about it. Jeff will initially refuse to attend, but he'll eventually arrive dressed as Colossus because abs. And finally, Dean Pelton will show up uninvited as Mystique. I actually totally buy that. Yeah, I mean, especially Dean Pelton as Mystique, because while there are more glamorous X-Men costumes, to an extent going as Mystique is going with the potential for all the costumes. And I assume that he will work several quick changes in across the evening. So we are a listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional entities. I am, I believe, turning things over today, you, to uh, the current, unfortunately, leader of the Morlocks, Mask. Welcome, dear children. Welcome to Mask's Haunt of Happiness. You were brought here for precisely one purpose, for us to play with. But how, I wonder, perhaps you, Alan Webb, could be added to my perfectly monstrous collection of X-Men as Sunfire, a strange red fish mask to match your insect legs, and you'll be quitting the team almost daily to be hunted down each time. What fun. And you, Andrew Keith, could have a soul patch and a can of Mountain Dew grafted onto your tentacled form as my new Adam X. The Morlocks will have never been so... Extreme. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. This podcast is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're off to space to see what the Starjammers have been up to with their glorious adventures and fabulous fashion. 